you know, when you're a wizard, like we are out here, um, sometimes you have to show it to the, to the muggles out in the world. We've got a lot of wizards. Earl Thomas does some magical things. Um, Michael Bennett is Black Santa, but he's also a wizard. Did you and your entire family dress up as Jedi for Halloween? Nerd! You get bent out of shape when you don't like the actor playing your favorite comic book character? Standard nerds! Do you ever wonder why there aren't more black superheroes? Mm-hmm. All my life. Well, then you came to the right place. This is Northwest Nerd, a podcast for all things nerdy in the Pacific Northwest. My name is Nick Jaron. As always, Dyer Oxley is here with me. Every two weeks, we take you inside the world of Northwest Nerds. Usually, that means we'll break down some news of the week before Dyer presents his deep dive of the episode, but we're going to do things a little differently today. Dyer's story this week is on diversity and casting in pop culture, TV, and film, and we had a ton to say about it afterwards, so today we're going to start with Dyer's story that I think you guys are really going to appreciate. We'll discuss that, and then we'll get into a review of Doctor Strange. Here we go. Ghost in the Shell is one of the most successful franchises in history. It's been popular every step of the way ever since it was first published as a manga series in 1989, and then as an anime feature a few years later, and this, of course, doesn't count the video games. So naturally, when Hollywood decided to turn this into a live-action film based on a Japanese anime set in a Japanese city about a Japanese cyborg police major, they cast a white American actress, Scarlett Johansson. As you can imagine, the casting raised quite a few eyebrows, especially with an audience who has stayed with this series for decades. People were mad. Why was a white actress in the role of a Japanese character? It seemed to prove a lot of critics right that Hollywood was whitewashing its films, that is, taking non-white roles and placing white actors in them. There was a lot of conversation sparked on social media and in the industry. Now, amid all of this frustration, comic book writer and filmmaker Max Landis weighed in. And like any decent modern American, he did it on YouTube. The only reason to be upset about Scarlett Johansson being in Ghost in the Shell is if you don't know how the movie industry works. You're mad at the wrong people if you're mad at the studio or the director or the actress or the film industry. Because what's broken is cultural. You may recognize some of Landis's work, which ranges from American Ultra to Victor Frankenstein, or there was a short, The Death and Return of Superman, all of which he wrote. And he's also directed a few projects and written for some DC Comics titles. In his video, he goes into an explanation of how the film industry works. There are really like only 10 men who get movies made. Two of them are black, Denzel and Will Smith. Then there are about like five women who can get your movie made. One of them is Scarlett Johansson. His argument? It takes a lot of money to make a movie. And companies, they want to make that money back, but also pull in a hefty profit. It's basically business 101. And casting is a big part of that. They want to feature someone popular enough to draw in massive ticket-paying crowds. But in recent years, there just hasn't been any big stars. There are no A-list female Asian celebrities right now on an international level. It, it, it's infuriating. Landis argues that this this is the reality of modern filmmaking. And filmmakers, they're scared of losing money. And a risky movie with a crazy concept like Ghost in the Shell, you better believe they're gonna cast Scarlett Johansson because they need the movie to work. Casting Scarlett Johansson's like the best thing that could have happened to that movie. Because now you get a Ghost in the Shell movie. 
You can view Landis's full and unedited video commentary on YouTube. It's under his account, Up To My Knees. But essentially what he's saying here is that he agrees the whole thing is stupid, but it's sadly the way the business works. But when you ask why they didn't cast one of thousands of Asian actors, you shouldn't be asking that. You should be asking why they, we don't have any A-list Asian celebrities. And if you're mad about this, you should be. This is all actually part of a much larger conversation that has been going on. Ghost in the Shell is set to be released in 2017, but the controversy leading up to that release, it didn't happen in a vacuum. It seems like the year of 2016 has been filled with pop culture products being called out for their lack of diversity. There was Doctor Strange's casting choices for its Asian characters. An important role of the Ancient One was converted from an old Tibetan man into a Celtic woman, played by an English actress, Tilda Swinton. Through the mystic arts, we harness energy and shape reality. We travel great distances in an instant. In Matt Damon's latest film, The Great Wall, it's set in ancient China, yet as a white hero. It's been argued that it's promoting a white savior model. I fought for greed and gods. This is the first war I've seen. Worth fighting. A biographical film about Miles Davis was also released in 2016. Don Cheadle spent nearly a decade trying to get the film made, but finally, to get major funding for a biographical film about a real-life iconic musician, he had to write in a fictional white journalist. That's right, it's a biography about one of the most influential musicians in the history of America who is African-American, and they had to inject a fictional white lead just to get it made. Now to be fair to some of these films, there's been a lot of interviews and press on their casting issues, and to cover them all would take a couple episodes under themselves. But in short, for Doctor Strange, they face the challenge of bringing up to date a character that was seeped in racist stereotypes. Screenwriter C. Robert Cargill, he said that there was no way to win this challenge, but they tried to minimize the offense. In pursuit of doing that, they basically removed an Asian role. And to be fair to The Great Wall, Chinese director Zhang Yimou has defended the casting of Matt Damon. He argues that the role was always intended to be non-Chinese, and that Damon's character is one hero out of five. So, does Max Landis have a point about the business of pop culture? Or does our pop culture just have a diversity problem? And actually, is all of that far too simple for a much more complex issue? It feels like our voices are ignored. It feels like our representation is ignored. It feels like when either or is given, it is done at like the most bottom of the barrel. Meet Tanika Stotts. She's a Portland-based comic book creator. She writes and releases her own indie projects, and she freelances for companies like Image. Tanika will often host panels at conventions. She's held two recently in Portland, one on diversity and another on queer issues in comic books. And when you think about it, a lot of the movies being made recently, including the ones receiving criticism, they started in comics. It's something where people just do not connect with the fact that they have just pretty much ignored the general population and have just made this kind of safe book. You can say it's a genius book because it's all these big name creators or whatnot, but they're the same names that I see every time. The creators, in Tanika's view, they're a big part of this diversity conversation. Now, you may have big names and popular creators, but if they have blind spots, if they're basically white and lack a minority experience, well, that just cycles through. And as long as money's being made, companies, they're going to keep paying for it. 
Paid ignorance is literally corporations who continually pay people who are known to be problematic to continue doing the things that they do. And then also they don't need to listen to other people because they feel we're just a niche audience and that we're so small that our voices will not matter at the end of the day when they're counting profits. So whether it's a comic or a movie or a TV show, before an actor reads their lines or is even chosen, the creators and the gatekeepers producers, for example, they set up what these products are to be. It's beyond just having a sensitivity reader. It's beyond just researching this culture or these people on Wikipedia. You can literally find a person who is of XYZ origin to assist you with creating a book. So when it comes to pop culture, or at least these films that have caused so much controversy, who are these creators? There was a 2016 study out of UCLA. It looked at the makeup of the film industry. Now, it produced a lot of statistics, but some of the highlights. Despite 40% of the country being composed of minorities, they were underrepresented in leading film roles three to one. It's the same when it came to film directors, and it was five to one when it came to film writers, and 11 to one when it came to creators of TV shows. Women lose out 12 to one when it comes to film directors. Four to one for film writers. Men are basically double when it comes to TV leads and creators. The University of Southern California also took on this issue and it did its own study. It covers the industry from 2014 and 2015. It found that 7% of films had a balance of ethnicity that actually matched the reality of America. TV did a little bit better. It was 19%. There's a lot more statistics, but you get the picture. At the end of the day, whether you're reading or you're watching, we're all basically getting one character in pop culture. He's a straight white dude. And that's all pretty much an echo of the people making it. This is kind of embarrassing, but I was just by myself and I needed to waste two hours. So I went to go see Bridget Jones's diary, <laughs> which I know, I know, um, I did cry. This is Keiko Green. She's not just an audience member, but she's actually a Seattle-based actress. During the previews, the first four, every single lead was white. The fifth movie, the lead was a dog with a white owner. And then the sixth movie was an all-white lead cast again. And I was just like, this is so crazy that we have more dog main characters than like one non-white person. Keiko studied and acted in New York before coming out to Seattle. You can pretty much find her on a stage any given time of the year, but she also pulls in some TV and film work. She did some scenes for Grimm, filming in Portland last season. So she has gone through the system, casting, performing, writing and producing her own work. I'm half Japanese, so I go into that category of person of color and or racially ambiguous. That's a term that's used often in casting. When we consider all the people making decisions with casting and writing, writing films like Ghost in the Shell or the Miles Davis biography, you hear a lot of their arguments or you hear Max Landis say that there aren't any diverse movie stars out there. And in a way, you can understand the nuts and bolts business side of things. But talking with Keiko, there's a much more blatant side to it all. Keeping stereotypes going, choosing who will be the face of film or stage. A lot of reasoning for why people go with white actors is they say that they audition other people, but they're not up to par talent-wise, certainly not box office-wise. People grow exponentially once they're working on a project. If you don't get that opportunity, then you never get to grow. These young starlets, you know, usually white, are going to get better and better and better and better, and by the time they get old, they're going to have all this experience under their belt, and they can carry a movie, whereas these 
young Asian, Black, Latino, Latina, Native American, certainly, all these people are never going to be able to stretch that muscle and become better and certainly never become something marketable. They're kind of stuck in this rut. So what kind of experience is available? I auditioned for this show, Lipstick Jungle. I went in for this role as a masseuse. There weren't, there were like five lines and the first one was pretty broken English. So I was like, you know what, maybe I'll make a choice that she's doing this accent. You know, once the person actually asks her like a good question, she drops it and is actually, she's like, you know, I, I was just doing that as my gig and it was her decision to put on a fake accent. And then as soon as I did that, they were like, no, 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 no. I love what you're doing at the beginning. Because what they want is ultimately a sexy Asian girl speaking in broken English for the entire thing. It's a geisha masseuse is what they wanted. Even after crossing the country, she found the same thing out here on the West Coast. <laughs> Our one TV show that we have shooting in Spokane, Z Nation. I auditioned for a lead role for that, but what, I also auditioned for a, a really tiny like one page role. And in that one, it was just a paragraph of broken English. And that's been one of the few auditions for a television show where I've just told my agent, no thanks, I think I'm good. Keiko also told me about another audition. It was for a role in a production of Emma here in Seattle. And she said they were conscious in trying to make it a diverse cast. I was up for one of the roles. I knew that they wanted me for it and the playwright had talked to me about it privately and I went back for the callback. They had me read for something else and I was like, what about the role that I thought I was going to get? And the casting director said, oh, we're going white with that. And that's obviously like super not okay. You know, it's supposed to be like more of a secret when people decide those things, but he kind of really messed up and actually accidentally said it out loud. In a way, it's amazing that he accidentally said that because because sometimes it feels like we're crazy. We're like, no, I swear to God, like we are being treated differently. And then people are like, yeah, sure, okay. And then there are those moments where people, someone slips up and you're like, see? <laughs> So Keiko basically told me that this is all sort of part of the system. You get officials off stage making these decisions, and they consider who the audience is. Um, when you start talking about producers who are there to make money, they're first, you know, they think white people, they'll bring in more money. Stepping over to the other side of that stage, Keiko's actually found how easy it is to get wrapped up in that system. And even being a minority, I still think like, oh, we got our even if it's the same one as me, I'm like, oh, we got our Asian girl. Instead of thinking like, why can't there just be two Asian girls that are in this show? Part of it is for sure the fact that we're raised watching stories and, you know, when you're watching Mighty Morphin Power Rangers and you see like, what a diverse cast. They have one Asian, one black person, one woman, and, you know, two white guys. That's diversity. And it is. And, you know, in a way that's really awesome, but we are kind of thought to think that a diverse cast means you check that box, you check that box, and then you kind of fill out your quota that way. Let's take a step back from all of this. The business, the casting, the movie stars. What about the audience? You have minority groups that don't see themselves in most of our pop culture. And on the other side of that, I kind of have a theory that people of color grow up watching white protagonists. And so we or they are able to empathize a little bit more with people that look not like themselves, you know, whereas white people seeing people that look like them constantly as the leading role, you know, I, I think it must it might be subconsciously a little bit harder to empathize. So remember when I asked the question about diversity in our pop culture, if it was too simple, there's a lot to cover. Despite the studies and the way the business is, there are producers of more diverse media. Tanika, she's one of them. And if the issue of diversity is something people feel like they want changed, she actually had a thought about that. 
Like, <laughs> as some people say, you lead with your wallet. Uh, they won't want to read that drivel anymore. Others will be fanboy fangirls for life, and that's fine. That, that can still exist. I mean, if you're going to do a terrible job, I don't mind doing a better one. Okay. All right. A ton to unpack there. And I think that this discussion is going to go particularly long because this is one of your stories that I've been really excited to dig into, Dyer. Um, obviously, also one of the biggest headaches of a story because you can't put <laughs> it in a package. It's gigantic. It's no. gigantic. And we should get a quick thank you in there for uh, for Keiko Green and Tanika Stotts. If you want to see more of Tanika's stuff, it's on TanikaStotts.com, T-A-N-E-K-A. S-T-O-T-T-S dot com. She does most of her stuff online and funds it online as well. So if you like her perspective, which I really appreciated in this piece, then go check out her website and check out her comics too. And Keiko Green, I think can just be found on a stage somewhere, right? Just, yeah. just kind of Google her and figure out where she is right now? Basically, yeah. She uh, has had pretty consistent work uh, throughout the year. Um, Good for her. That's awesome. Being an actor is not easy. It's uh, it's not the steady work that podcasting is. No. <laughs> okay, so let's get into this. Uh, 2016, like you said, has really been a big year for bringing attention to the issue of whitewashing in particular and the issue of casting diverse roles in TV and film, especially pop culture TV and film, is increasingly becoming top of mind for people. So back in, I think it was 2014 or 2015, you had hashtag not your Asian sidekick where people on Twitter were really pushing back on how Asian characters in movies, whether they be rom-coms, sitcoms, superhero movies, what have you, tended to be relegated to being the, the sidekick, the, uh, the right-hand man or the, uh, the comic relief to whoever was doing the actual superheroing uh, protagonist of the story who is usually white. Uh, right after that, you had one of my favorite social media campaigns that happened earlier this year, hashtag starring John Cho, yeah. which was this amazing uh, art movement online where this guy was replacing movie posters and photoshopping John Cho into all of them. John Cho, of course, you might know him from Star Trek. He plays Sulu in the new J.J. Uh, Abrams Star Trek movies. He was also in Harold and Kumar. He Harold and Harold, Kumar. Yeah, that seems course. to be like the one... Yeah, thing you're he, always going to get called back to is going to be Harold and Kumar. And he's great. Yeah. And I love John Cho. And he should get more work and more work in leading roles. And that's exactly the kind of the kind of project that made people look at an Asian person in a, in a lead role and think, huh, why do I feel like this looks weird? Like, why do why do I feel like it looks weird when John Cho is on the in the poster for Avengers 2 or something like that? You know, it really held up the mirror to the audience rather than point out that, of course, John Cho should get Especially more work. Especially when you look at the Avengers, of the diversity of the Avengers, is, um, in a couple of the films you have an African-American guy and then you have a green guy. And yeah. that's that's the diversity. Yep. Yep. Yeah. Green guy or... Uh, no. It's, yeah. it's, it's kind of hard. Yeah, it's exactly. mostly white, yeah. <laughs> and we might just leave that pause in there because it took me a while to go yeah. through the team. Okay, um, I want to first respond to Max Landis because I think he's absolutely wrong with the Scarlett Johansson ghost in a shell thing. Uh, I did a little bit of research. You know, I prepare for the podcast sometimes. Yeah. And 
Scarlett Johansson is not a movie star. She's not a bankable movie star. Her, her movies are not guaranteed to make a lot of money. I'm just going to quickly run through uh, her top 10 grossing movies. Mm-hmm. Lifetime from, uh, this is from boxofficemojo.com. Number one, Avengers. Avengers 2, Captain America 3, The Jungle Book, which she was the vo- a voice in, and she wasn't even one of the lead voices. Iron Man 2, Captain America 2, Lucy, He's Just Not That Into You, SpongeBob, We Bought a Zoo. Exactly one of those movies is actually starring SpongeBob, Scarlett Johansson, and it's Lucy, which made uh, $43 million in its opening weekend and $126 million gross lifetime in theaters. That does not make her an unassailable choice to cast in an Asian woman's role. That's still not okay. And I think that this is part of a larger problem. Like, I don't want to pick on Scarlett Johansson in particular because I don't think there are really bankable movie stars anymore. You look at the aging wave of movie stars that are going out now, your Denzels, your Tom Cruises, who have both had flops just this year, and you see that even even someone like Will Smith can't just open a movie and immediately make money on it. There are no major movie stars anymore that you can just put in a movie and they'll go out there and make that movie money. You look at the uh, the big Chris's too, uh, Chris Pratt, Chris Pine, Chris Evans. A lot of those guys are making their money in movies that are driven by the franchise and the intellectual property more than the face of the franchise. And I think that a lot of them get way more credit than they deserve because they quote unquote look like a movie star. They look like the white guy with the strong jaw who can crack a joke and then get the girl at the end. Perhaps with a butt chin. Perhaps with a butt, sometimes with a butt chin. Yeah. It's a good point. Good callback. But that's that's my main thing. My main response to all of this is that there are no movie stars anymore, and it's a really weak excuse to continue to cast white people in these roles that should be people of color and say that, well, they'll make more money with a white person at the lead because we haven't given the other side enough of a chance to get evidence and uh, to get data proving that it won't work on the other side because you have people like Jet Li who have made so many movies, who have made so much money, or Jackie Chan and whatnot. And granted, those are two examples who are both martial artists, but they've also been shoehorned into the fact that Hollywood will only greenlight movies with Asian people in the lead if it's a martial arts movie. So yeah. this is again, like this is this point is already kind of spiraling out of control because this reaches so many pieces of our culture. But I now open the floor to you. What's what's well, your response to did that? Did you did you watch his full? Because um, it was hard to pack all of his arguments into just the into one little feature. Did you watch his whole video? I watched part of it. Yeah, and and so it's kind of you, you kind of hear him and you're like, yeah, okay, that makes sense. But then it's kind of like, yeah, but I'm not following you there because. Mm-hmm. At one point, it's like, yeah, we don't have, I think, the movie stars that we kind of used to have. Um, And the one point that I think he does bring up uh, of pointing to the business end of things, because I I think that a huge factor of racism that people don't really ever talk about is the economic factor and how that cycles things through. He he makes all these arguments, and you're kind of like, okay, I'm not sure if I follow you there, whatever. And then he actually says that there's one property that is larger than all of uh, the actors and actresses that you can put in it. And he goes, it's Star Wars. And they cast a white girl. And that kind of like went directly against his whole argument. So it's like, yeah. yeah, I mean, so like, okay, so even when they do have the opportunity that they don't, and you're telling us that it's not business's fault, um, they're making these decisions. And I think, they, I think that there's a few things going on here. Is they think that, uh, and Keiko kind of said this too, in a different way that uh, I think that they assume that, you know, white people are going to bring the money and that everybody else is just a niche art audience. 
And uh, more than that, the reflection of the art is from the people that are making it. We don't really have a lot of people making these uh, products that can kind of bring in a different perspective. It's basically just an echo of the people that are actually making these films. Yeah, that's one thing that I... Well, let's let's pause for a second because I think that someone said this a little bit better than I'm about to say it. Mm-hmm. Uh, Alan Yang, one of the co-creators of Master of None on Netflix, uh, him and Aziz Ansari created that show together. They won two Emmys for that show, uh, one for writing, uh, which was for the Parents episode, which I don't know if you watched that show. It but was that, the best thing I've seen oh my in God, such a long time. One of the best I things of the year. Up. I Not only was I cracking up, but I was like crying, and I was like, I need to call my dad. I need to call my dad at the end of this episode. But uh, if you haven't seen that, go check it out on Netflix right now. But when Alan Yang won his Emmy, uh, this is what he said in terms of representation in TV and film right now. There's 17 million... Asian Americans in this country, and there's 17 million Italian Americans. They have The Godfather, Goodfellas, Rocky, The Sopranos. We got Long Duck Dog, so we got a long way to go. But I know we can get there. I believe in us. It's just going to take a lot of hard work. Asian parents out there, if you could just do me a favor, if just a couple of you get your kids cameras instead of violins, we'll be all good. So we'll just do it. And obviously he plays for the joke a little bit there, but I think that a lot of that is serious in that if we're going to fix the problem of people of color not being able to tell their stories, we need people of color to tell their stories in really powerful ways. And this is one way that I think that TV is just leaps and bounds ahead of film right now. Like There are plenty of tiny films that you can sometimes find or find at film festivals and stuff like that that are made by people of color and represent those viewpoints and whatnot. But you look at TV and you look at what's done really well there. You see uh, Fresh Off the Boat, Blackish, Master of None, uh, Luke Cage, Atlanta on FX, uh, The Get Down on Netflix has also done really well. Or even something as simple as a middling sitcom that decides to make the male lead a Filipino actor in My Crazy Ex-Girlfriend. These are the types of things that TV is doing in both subtle and really splashy ways that film can just not wrap their heads around. And I think that part of that is because it's it's the economic thing where you have this boogeyman of needing a return on investment. And when you're putting over $100 million into a movie, like, say, Doctor Strange, which we'll talk about a little bit later, then you need it to make that much more money beyond that. Or when you're... You can kind of swing for the fence a little bit more when you're making something like Atlanta on FX, which costs way less money than Doctor Strange should make and will make way less money, but can then have the freedom to speak to a different audience and connect on with them in a more in a more personal way. And that's one reason why I think that TV is doing this much better. And you actually have some numbers about this, right? Uh, yeah. Well, I mean, if we're talking about diversity in TV, uh, the, the studies uh, from UCLA and USC... Go look them up. They're not that hard uh, to find. UCLA had 2016 Hollywood Diversity Report, and USC had Inclusion or Invisibility. Um, but USC actually, um, they had a lot more other stats, such as, you know, like if you're a female character, um, there's far more uh, probability that basically the only reason for a female to be in any sort of story is for some sort of sexualization. And they break that down even just to the wardrobe, that, you know, guys, we get pants and a shirt, and then women don't get much. And so uh, that's basically, I mean, and this is, I mean, you can just turn on TV and, and see this anywhere, but 
Uh, they also raided um, the companies for film and for television to find out exactly how are they standing up, and they gave them grades. And, um, you know, spoiler alert, none of them passed, basically. They don't pass for inclusion, um, for actually reflecting— Not surprised. They, for, for reflecting the reality of the uh, demographic makeup of the country. But uh, Sony and Viacom were noted that they actually took steps to uh, reflect their audiences uh, over the past couple years. Um, for TV, there were only two companies that actually uh, scored remotely high for inclusion. That was Disney and CW. Hmm. Um, and that's just basically looking at, you know, who is actually being represented. And I are not just, you know, it's not just that game of, okay, we've got A, B, C, you know, we've got the, these slots filled. Yeah, you're not just checking off a, a list. Exactly. It's exactly how are these people in there, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and, I mean, at one point you can take kind of what uh, Keiko said, and I've seen a lot of shows like this. Okay, so we have an Asian person in there, but is that Asian person, well, long duck dong, yep. you know? And um, and so they actually kind of looked at that, and that's why a lot of, I think, uh, these companies, while they say, okay, you did have some inclusion, but you still didn't really rate that high, you know, yeah. because how many times are we just going to watch a show and it's just going to be, okay, attractive Asian girl, one, and she can't speak English very well, and she's not exactly that smart about our American ways. I can, like, think of a few shows that I've watched that have that exact character in it, and mm-hmm. it keeps getting written. Um but yeah, and so uh, the I mean the other thing that kind of this is kind of an aside, but um, Ghost in the Shell and their effort to uh, to try to uh, I don't know meet audiences. And it's a really screwed up effort, by the way. Um, after it kind of became known that Scarlett Johansson was going to be in this role as a Japanese character, um, and they cast a white person, producers actually went back. And they said, okay, how are we going to do this? And they paid a company to do this. They actually CGI'd. Wait, 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 wait. I'm glad you brought this up. Okay. I just want to pause for emphasis because listeners at home, this is really happening. Okay, go. <laughs> they actually paid a company to go through all the white actors, CGI their faces to make them look Asian. They didn't, they didn't go with this. Yep. But they actually went out there and said, you know what? Um, people aren't happy that we cast white people in the Asian role. So what we're going to do is just make them look Asian. And it just, it, in my mind, I don't know if you ever saw. My God. I don't know if you ever saw uh, the lesson that James Bond learned with Sean Connery. Um, everybody's gone through their James Bond phase, right? Yeah. You go through a lot of films. There's one James Bond film, and I'm forgetting which one it is, uh, because it's not that popular for a lot of reasons. James Bond goes to Japan. A bunch of those early ones are really iffy. James Bond goes to Japan, but to get him to fit in, they give him plastic surgery to look Japanese, My and God. then he learns, um, he learns how to, uh, you know, do martial arts and and basically be kind of like a martial arts James Bond. By the way, doesn't look that good on Sean Connery <laughs> at all. It shouldn't look that good, but Sean Connery trying to to basically put on. Um, I don't know, Asian face. I mean, we have black face. Yep. Um, it just, it's not a good idea um, at the very least. And it's offensive at 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 another very least. Like just uh, the common sense factor that somebody actually thought in, in a, an official capacity 
let's do this and see how yeah. that works. I'm hoping they thought like in some really perverted way it was a joke on themselves because there's no way you can logically think that that's a good idea. Uh, that's giving them way too much credit. All right. They thought that uh, Asian people were really easy to make fun of, and they went for that joke. Uh, at that point in time, that was the low-hanging fruit. And for a lot of places right now, that's still the low-hanging fruit, to make fun of someone's accent, mannerisms, cultural ways, what have you. There's one word that we've danced around this entire episode, and we're on like 20, 30 minutes in right now. And I want to talk about this because a lot of people hear the big R word, and they immediately shut their ears. Racism. Calling something racist doesn't equate it to the KKK or some kind of weird, like, going out there and hunting black people boogeyman that you think a racist is. Racism is in all of us. And by that I mean it's a structure of power that we have, not only in America, but because we're the only superpower in the world, the rest of the world as well, where white people are on top and we participate in ways... When we put other people, people of color, down below us. So Sean Connery poking fun at Asian people isn't just Sean Connery poking fun at Asian people. It's a white person demonstrating yet again that not only is it safe for him to do that, which should be fine, like comedy, whatever, you, every, everything should be on the table for comedy. But not only is it safe for him to do that, but it is applauded and appreciated by an audience that doesn't see anything wrong or critical in that. Um, this is a similar thing that we're going to talk about when we talk about Doctor Strange where, or, or even Great Wall. When you cast white characters into Asian stories and then have them become the star, or that Miles Davis story. Oh my God. I didn't hear about that until you put that in the, in the story this week. And that is just... That is just baffling to me. And it immediately reminded me of the uh, the recut trailer for Straight Outta Compton where somebody put this on YouTube and they made Paul Giamatti's character mm. the star of the movie, which is totally how that movie would have been made like 10, 15 years ago and if the people actually in NWA weren't involved in that movie. But that's what I'm talking about. That is racist. And we should be okay calling that kind of stuff racist. We're not calling it like some wear a hood, burn a cross racist we're saying that it's perpetuating a power structure in which we celebrate certain types of people over others, especially in our storytelling. And it's the kind of thing that Alan Yang is talking about, where not to get too solution-focused on this thing, because I don't think that it's just a matter of Asian people picking up cameras and telling these stories themselves, but we need people of color to tell these stories because white people don't have the bandwidth to do it. They have a huge cultural blind spot, and I say this as someone who is who is half white. They have a huge cultural blind spot to what the rest of America is experiencing, and they cannot tell those stories. They can try really hard, but they cannot tell those stories. And that's why I think that I, I keep on coming back to TV and stories like Atlanta, which just wrapped up an amazing first season, got renewed, by the way, for season two, which is simply a story about four black people in Atlanta and that's the story. And it's amazing because it's told with such precision and perspective that it's both believable and surreal at the same time because of what they're showing you. And that's the type of storytelling that we miss out on when you cast somebody in an Asian role to be the Asian person in the room or the type of storytelling that we miss out on when you cast the black person to be the best friend rather than being a three-dimensional character. And when you look at good storytelling... It's not putting people in a box. It's letting people explore what's outside of their box. Does that make sense? Yeah. 
the thing about I think television and the reason that you're able to kind of point that out a little bit more than film. I mean, film you spend millions of dollars and then you get one shot and you just hope that okay that you're not losing money. Yeah. The way television operates is different, and the way television has basically evolved is now we've got so many different channels and we've got so many different days and so many different hours. I mean, there's so many different ways you can break this down. TV has the ability, and it's it's not there yet, but TV has the ability to cast a wide net because they need to pull in as much of the audience as they can, and they can pull audiences from over here and pull audiences from over here, pull audience from over here, whether you like dramatic stuff or comedic stuff, whether you like, you know, um, stories that include Native Americans or you have, you know, I don't know, Dan Savage's new show um, that they have based on his life, you know. Mm-hmm. And so they, I think they're able to cast these wide nets and spend a lot less money. They're still spending a lot of money, but a lot less compared to film uh, than just what film will do where these people, I think, are just running scared and don't want to take any sort of risk. And I don't think it's always been that way because you look at when better films have been made in history, better films that had more inclusion in them, and back in the 80s, 90s, uh, you can even say to the 70s to a certain degree, um, they weren't scared then, and they were still making great films. But uh, some reason today, I think that, I mean, there kind of is an argument that we don't get a lot of really kind of great films. We get a lot of formulaic films, mm. you know, and um, and we don't really get any, I guess, that, you know, to the point of these studies, we don't really get a mirror image of ourselves. Uh, we, we were at a... Uh, panel in um in rose city comic-con on diversity and there was a uh, puerto rican comic artist on there uh tristan and she was talking about watching the avengers you know big events happening in new york a huge attack and she's wondering where are all the puerto ricans where are all the puerto ricans this is new york yeah of all places you know and it's just even something as simple as that you could th- seinfeld you know which people say oh that's like the white show you know like people like kind of give it you know, NBC's, uh, was it NBC? Yeah, I think that was NBC. It was like, okay, so, you know, you had, like, all the white people shows, Seinfeld, Friends, and all that, right? People get crap like that. Even Seinfeld included everybody in New York. I mean, you had a lot of people. I mean, they had a New York show. So um, now you come to today, and you watch the Avengers, and you're like, where are all the Puerto Ricans at, you know? (laughs) Um, It's absolutely true, and it's one of the reasons that I am increasingly getting bored with not only the superhero origin story, but the superhero origin story about a white guy who has had a really great life and then something happens and now he gets to become a superhero. Yeah. Like, I, I've seen that too many times now. And I don't care how well Marvel is is doing those stories. I'm not particularly interested in seeing them anymore. We've we've had enough of them. Well, we have enough of them you. that like I can go back and watch the good ones, and I don't need any new ones. It's formulaic. You you can just basically put in a formula, and then hopefully at the end of it, you pull in millions of dollars. I want to go back to this idea of studio executives playing the safe move by casting white actors. I don't think that's a safe move, and I think that that's based on really bad data. Because you can you can point to any number of flops starring white actors whether or not they were playing white roles or even white actors put into roles that they weren't meant to play like Johnny Depp in the Lone Ranger movie which was one of the worst flops in in film history that's not a safe move you guys and if you had maybe cast that more truly 
and put somebody in there who audiences could get to know and explore that world with the first time, that could have been a way different movie. And obviously it had other problems. But I think that if you aid yourself by casting things to the source material, that can help a little bit more. And that again comes back to the source material really being the star in a lot of these cases where these movie stars do not really exist anymore. There are no bankable movie stars anymore. I, I challenge anybody in the audience to to prove me wrong. Show me somebody who has been able to lift up properties that were unknown and make money off of them because you don't have your Harrison Fords out there anymore who are just printing money in any number of ways. I mean, maybe Tom Hanks, but even him, every other movie or more really is a flop and he's getting old. So he can't do these action movies and stuff like that anymore. But Back to the not having enough data thing. They think that it's safe to cast white people in these roles because white people have been successful in those roles. But white people have given have been given the opportunity to be successful in those roles. People of color really haven't been given those opportunities yet. Uh, which is why, again, I keep on coming back to TV where they are being given those chances and we're finding that they're doing really well in them. You look at the success of Luke Cage. That show crashed the Netflix servers its first weekend because so many people wanted to watch that show on Netflix. That says something. And obviously Netflix is kind of a special case because they don't release a bunch of their data and we have no idea actually how many people are watching those shows. But we need to give black actors, uh, black women, Asian women, Asian men, Native American men, Native American women, uh, Latinos, Latinas, we need to give all of these people a shot at leading these movies. And we see a little bit of that coming up uh, with, I mean, Wonder Woman, uh, Black Panther, and a couple other movies like that. But it's, we, we had to wait so long for those things to happen. I always kind of wondered, especially with a lot of these examples that you kind of... I always kind of wondered, especially with a lot of these examples that you, you point out, that... Um, yeah, they play it safe um, for so long, but now I think people are realizing that, oh, uh, we can tell the same story over and over again. We can tell the same story of basically plot point A, B, and C, you know, uh, conflict, resolution, and it's the same kind of character over and over again. Or we can, oh, we have other stories to tell. We have other cultures and perspectives that, that people get really surprised at. I, I was talking with Keiko about The Wire, She's like, is is the wire like a really good story? And the wire is a really good story, but or is the wire one of the best TV shows of all time? Yeah, or is also the part of the what makes the wire successful is that's the first time white people have ever seen that many black people talk to each other on screen before, because that's different. <laughs> yeah, you know that's not something that you you see all all, all of a sudden. Um, but you know any other show that you watch, you know, cop procedural shows. Try to show me anything that kind of reflects that reality of it. I think that The Wire actually went and did, and and it was a hugely it's it's it is. People have said that that is probably going to go down in history as one of the greatest television shows ever made. Yeah, yeah. already is. Yeah. One other thing I wanted to touch on that I was really glad that Keiko brought up is the idea of growing up with white protagonists. That that is the norm, even for people of color who are seeking out their entertainment. A lot of times. Um, and I, I'm sorry, I keep on mentioning this, but I am half white, half Filipino. So I have kind of like a split view on all of these things. Um, I, I do seek out, especially when I was growing up, like 
if I were watching an ensemble show and there was one brown character, I'd be like, that's my guy. That's my guy right there. Like in Captain Planet, there was like one brown guy. Yeah, he got heart. Yeah, and I was like, well, it, it sucks that we got heart out of all those really cool powers, but that's my guy right there. And if we are going to talk solutions, then we need to talk solutions in the way that we're representing people of color in entertainment and stories that are targeted towards children, which is the reason why people can get really upset about uh, a couple of years ago, Disney was going to premiere Sophia the Great that was based on kind of this, this mythical kingdom where there were brown people and Spanish-speaking people who ruled this kingdom, basically. But she had blue eyes. And people online rightly got upset about that because, come on, she can't have brown eyes. We can't have one person that we can look up to, even if it's some Disney princess on TV. Like, it's these tiny decisions and in these tiny ways that we tell children this person is validated by how they are a little bit white. And that's something that I've definitely seen in my life where depending on the situation, I have to play up certain aspects of myself in order to get along with different people. And obviously that's been great because I've been able to achieve certain amounts of success professionally. And I obviously have a podcast now, so I'm doing pretty good, you guys. But uh, that kind of flexibility is foisted on children of color in particular when it's not foisted on white children. And that's the kind of racism and privilege that we should point to, especially in the stories that we're telling our kids. Like we, we need to have representative stories that they can digest as well, which is why something like Teen Titans Go, for example, where Beast Boy has kind of become a person of color on those shows, even though I think in the comics he's originally like a redheaded white boy and he's best friends with a black guy in Cyborg. And that kind of relationship can be really powerful in the way that it's shown to children that you can be all kinds of different things and get along and treat each other as people and not treat each other as, oh, hey, you're Filipino. Where's a good place to eat that has Filipino food? Like, that's not the only question you should be asking me socially. You know what I mean? And that kind of stuff is ingrained in us from a very early age where the characters that we see on TV and in film are treated the exact same way that people are treated in in workplaces, offices, churches, what have you around the country right now where they are put into a box because that's the way that they've been shown those people to be. The bottom line is if we're going to zoom out and kind of address the huge cultural questions of racism in this country, then we need to be telling each other the stories that transcend those things and look for the good in the way that we can treat each other rather than continually engaging in the things that put each other in boxes that we don't belong in. One, uh, I guess, final comment on that, kind of on the conversation of just what racism is. The conversation we have about racism is wrong, in my opinion. Um, growing up, uh, if okay, so you're average Joe, white kid growing up in America, and you get told, uh, you get the, the racism lesson, right, in elementary school, middle school. You hear about Martin Luther King Jr. You basically hear about maybe Malcolm X, the Civil Rights Movement, and that happened all in the South, right? And you basically hear that this is what happens. Racism, somebody really doesn't like people that don't look like them. It's all in their heart. That's racism. And then that's that's basically what you grow up with. And when somebody tries to tell you that that's not what it is, people get 
I think, irate because that's really not what racism is. I mean, it is. is It's a very small corner of it. And it's very easy to go look at a bunch of KKK members burning crosses and go, okay, that's what it is. That's, That's a corner, okay? And that's a foot in the door. But that's really not what it is. You know, growing up in the Northwest and hearing these lessons, I never heard about Jumptown in Portland. I never heard about redlining in Seattle. Mm-hmm. You know, systematic um, branches of what we now would call racism, but back then we would just call it a way of life. You know, systematic structures of racism. Nobody ever wants to talk about the economy of racism. You know, the whole reason they tried to implement slavery in America and and you know basically start a racist practice is because it was cheap for them and it was economically viable for them. Literally free labor. Yeah, free labor. Yeah. I mean and and that is just I mean and that's just a small corner of what happened there. Yeah. So these I'm, are these are all tiny pieces of the gigantic conversation yeah. about race in this country. And when these pieces get put together, this giant puzzle, you see a system that gets put in place. And it's very hard to see it all because everybody's in their own corner of their life and they can only see what is around them. you know. And so I, I think it's very difficult for people to have these conversations because everybody is talking from different perspectives and they can't see around the corner where somebody else can see. And that's why it's important to kind of have, when you bring this back to our art, art is where we all can meet. Art is where we can all have stories told to us and we can kind of see, oh, that's what's around the corner. That's what somebody else is seeing. That's mm-hmm. where the conversation's happening that I don't have access to. You know, and so that's why I think when we see things on TV or see things on movie and people are mad that we don't get the good casting, we don't get the good stories told, uh, you know, and I'll just say decent reality-based stories told because we need those to see around the corner. And otherwise, we just we just see where we're at and we don't move anywhere in life, you know? Yeah. And so, you know, until Man, we actually- I, I, I love that. I love that analogy because I've said something very close to somebody uh, that I used to work with, actually. I said that he, he was asking me why. Well, now let me back up. He was getting upset because we were having a conversation about white privilege and he, he didn't understand why people of color could so easily point to it and yet white people had to be convinced of it. And I basically said, it's because white people get upset because they're joining a conversation that's been happening without them for years. Yeah. And when you grow up a person of color in this country, you can't not have that conversation. You can't not think about those things. And part of white privilege is getting to ignore all of that stuff until it's in your face or on your TV and people are talking directly to you about it. And I absolutely agree with you that art is our way into that conversation and we should be having those conversations and we need to be producing art and stories that allow us to explore those relationships to each other absolutely i I love that analogy until that art catches up with us we'll always have star trek (laughs) we teased this a little bit on our uh, facebook live around midnight on Friday when we went and saw Doctor Strange in downtown Seattle. So here is our uh, more full review (laughs) than we gave with our uh, no-spoiler discussion. The completion Uh, of the review. Yeah, there we go. We're going to review to completion. Yes. And I might cut that joke. (laughs) (laughs) Don't cut it. It works. (laughs) 
Most okay. people won't get it. Do you want to do a quick, just spoiler-free, quick little setup for what the movie is? If uh, you've seen Batman Begins, you've probably seen a lot of Doctor Strange. Uh, and in many ways, Batman Begins pulls off what Doctor Strange uh, attempts to do a little bit better. But um, Yeah, I'd agree with that. Essentially, a uh, character from America, uh, his name's Doctor Strange. Doctor Stephen Strange. And uh, he uh, is the classic story of Doctor Strange is that everybody knows he gets in a little bit of an accident. He's a neurosurgeon. He needs his hands. Hands get injured, and he's trying to fix them. And so at the end of his rope, he hears about some place in Nepal that uh, will you know, fix him up. And then what turns out is that it's not like a medical place. It's a spiritual place, and that puts him on a journey towards becoming a mystic master of sorts and spells and wizardry. Um, and then, you know, spoiler-free, of course, there's a big bad and fights happen. Things yeah. Roll out from there. So let's let's do a couple minutes spoiler-free and then let's get into some spoilers since this will post on Wednesday. Enough people will have seen it by then who want to listen to this podcast. Yeah. So spoiler-free, I thought that there was some pace problems for me in a lot of the movie Certain parts were yada yada, and other parts were given way more time than they needed. You got the feeling that, as with the problem with a lot of these Marvel movies, certain characters were given things to do in this movie, but not really given a story arc because they're obviously going to be in future movies and we need to be familiar with their face first. Um, this especially happens to Chiwetel Ejiofor's character. Uh, Mordu, and then there's also uh, Rachel McAdams. She kind of gets the Haley Atwell Award for long-suffering white female lead who's only there for the emotional support and ballast of the white male lead because she doesn't exist outside a hospital. the hospital and Doctor Strange's apartment, yeah. which is a problem for me because she should be a three-dimensional character. Other than Other than that, I think that there's a lot of similarities between what this movie does within the Marvel Cinematic Universe and what Guardians of the Galaxy does, except Guardians of the Galaxy is a way more fun journey to go on than Doctor Strange. So if you're going to see a movie that participates in one of these kind of off on the periphery until it's not Marvel stories, just go home and rewatch Guardians of the Galaxy again. You don't need to watch Doctor Strange. I totally agree with the pacing um, at some points. And the pacing is quick pacing. And case in point, if you watch Batman Begins, which is a similar... Uh, go to a mountain in Asia and and get your problems fixed. Um, Except this time, instead of ninjas, it's it's like wizards. a monastery. Yeah, yeah, it's a wizard uh, monastery. The idea of pacing through some sort of montage. There's a lot that's not left explained. I mean, obviously, this guy becomes a wizard, uh, and but they don't really explain any of the hand motions. They don't explain why he's so like smart at it or anything like that. They don't explain um, why Doctor. Obviously, Doctor Strange is different than everybody else, but why? They don't really say that. The other sacrifice you make with this, though, and you've, you've kind of touched upon this, is you basically uh, remove any investment in a lot of characters. They invest mainly in uh, the Ancient One a little bit and then mostly Doctor Strange. And everybody else that they could have, and I, I'll say this, everybody else that they should have invested in, um, they kind of leave out. One person that I really feel that they failed us on was... Uh, Benedict Wong. Yes. Benedict Wait, Wong, Benedict who played Wong. 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 <laughs> um, 
So they elevated one Benedict Cumberbatch, and then they they kind of left one by the wayside. Yep. Wong's character originally in the comic books was kind of his manservant, mm-hmm. and so and what they did is they tried to correct that to modern times, and he they made him a librarian. Um, so he's still there. He's in a elevated position, but uh, he's really only there for like comic relief um, at few moments of the film. And yep. it's it's it, for somebody who's going to play a librarian in a film. And when you see the full film of what actually he has to go through, that character they really missed out on um, of actually having Completely that agree. and yeah. influence on who this guy is. Plot points. There's a lot of plot points they could have woven into his story. Let's quickly touch on the production of this movie as well. So much CGI in this movie. Yeah. At certain points, they're trying to wow you, and instead you just kind of feel numb to it because you're like, that's cool that you're showing me this, but you didn't give me any background for why what I'm seeing should be amazing. The CGI have a little bit of a love-hate relationship with it in this film, and I'm usually pretty harsh on CGI. Yeah. CGI in this film is an important plot point. Um, it actually drives the movie forward. That said, it's excessive at some moments where it's like, why is this happening? Because it really doesn't do anything to the story. And almost if they took away some of the CGI in scenes where it really doesn't do anything for the story other than look really, really cool, mm-hmm. um, the other moments in the film where it's actually driving the, the story forward um, would have a lot more impact, you know, but there are moments where they're just gonna, you know, make, you know, wall shift and floor shift and, and it basically looks very inception like. Yeah. Um, it, but there's really no reason for it. It doesn't and they really, really ripped off a lot of Christopher Nolan stuff. Yeah. Um, th- this movie really, <laughs> really kind of takes off of inception that whole, yeah. I, and it, you know, the whole MC Escher painting, uh, style of CGI. And, um, it's not bad, but, uh, I do, I do think that they probably could have pulled back on that quite a bit mm-hmm. and still have had the film that they've gotten, maybe even made it more, a little more impactful. But it is nice to see when you actually have CGI, when you actually have special effects, and it actually is part of the story and not just some person's, you know, trying to wow you, yeah. you know, and for, for no other reason than to wow you, Michael Bay. Okay, spoilers from here on out. Not nearly enough time is given to explain the magic. And that bothers me a ton because you're opened up to all of these possibilities and yet none of it is explored in ways that would make a lot of sense. So Mads Mikkelsen plays the villain in this one, uh, Caecilius, who is a former student of the Ancient One played by Tilda Swinton who breaks off from Camartage, the, the, the monastery up in Nepal that they have. And there's no thought given to, well, why don't we use magic to find him? Uh, why don't we use magic to sneak up on him and defeat him? Instead, he's just kind of left out there to continue to build up power until eventually we have the fight that everyone wanted to see. And that's just completely unsatisfying to me. If they're really protectors of the world, then they should be way more proactive than they are. They shouldn't just be sitting back like, well, he's going to hit us next, I think. We're unprepared! Like, come on. There was one thing that I wrote down as kind of my main critique of this film that kind of left me wanting. Why? Yep. That's the hole in this movie, is the why. Why is Dr. Stephen Strange so good at this stuff? They, they kind of make a passing comment, well, I have a photographic memory or something like that, but it doesn't really explain anything. Mm-hmm. They even say right after that line that that's not all you need to be good at magic. Exactly, but in, in 
they never and the the montage they they say at one point it's like you need lots of practice to get this stuff right. Well, apparently, uh, yeah, like a month later, he's amazing at magic. You just need enough time to grow a beard, and that's that's the amount of time. And then once. shave it with your Phillips Norelco. Exactly. I mean, there's a lot of why that's left unanswered in this film, and and it's not like stuff that's lingering on that could be answered in another film. It's stuff you need to understand. For this film, okay, and here's the spoiler. If, if you if you're kind of dipping your toe in our spoiler pool here, uh, this is the time to to get out because here's the big one. All right, so the ancient one draws energy from the same place the big bad guy does. Dormammu. And it, Dormammu, and it makes her a hypocrite. Right? They never explain why. Is it just because she's selfish? Is it just because there was honorable reasons? She, she, they hint that there's some sort of wisdom behind it. Yeah, some sort of reason. Nowhere. Yeah, there's not explained. It's just there, and and at the end, even and there's though, some major conflict that comes from that revelation as well. Yeah, and they just skip right over it, and they never really and they explain never explain it. because they mention early on during the training that they pull power from other dimensions to use their magic. That's where the magic comes from. If the ancient one is pulling from the dark dimension, where's everybody else getting their magic? What dimension is that? It really seems like the kind of project that Marvel wanted to rush through so that they could introduce Doctor Strange to the rest of the universe. Yeah. This... Which is fine, but then don't don't ask people to spend their money on it. You know what I mean? It's the same reason why I still haven't seen Ant-Man. Marvel is weaving all of these films together, mm-hmm. and this film is going to be one of those strands that they're weaving together in this whole Infinity Stones mega story that they're going to do. Um, and so they needed yeah, the to one, the place one that. biggest spoiler that ties it to the rest of the Marvel Cinematic Universe is at the end you find out the Eye of Agamotto is actually one of the Infinity Stones and appears to be the Infinity Stone of time because it lets Doctor Strange manipulate time yeah. in some really creative ways. And he's able to use that thing even though some of the other Infinity Stones are not able to be used by mortals. And I think that that's part of the reason why we don't find that out until the end of the movie so that we can instead be looking forward instead of looking back. But looking back at this movie, I think you see a lot of problems, including why did they give us Doctor Strange's origin story at all? Because they had to change so much about it in order to make it palatable to a modern audience and a global audience. And they had to do it in such a way that would tie it into the rest of the MCU. Why not do a similar thing that they did to Spider-Man where Doctor Strange just appears in like Thor Ragnarok instead? Yeah. Why why give him his own two movies? It really doesn't feel like we accomplished that much other than show that a neurosurgeon can believe in magic. That's that's the main thing that changes in the movie. The reason why uh is because millions and millions of dollars. That's why. Yeah. Because I guess I was thinking narratively why. <laughs> narratively why there's not really a, a, a reason. I mean, it's Cuz uh, the character sucks. He's an arrogant he's an arrogant rich neurosurgeon yeah. who cares about the glory of being a surgeon not saving lives. He's kind of like the Tony Stark that doesn't learn his lesson. I mean, if we're going to put this in the grand scheme of all of the Marvel films, it's not the best. Uh but it's definitely not the worst. It's not Thor, which is 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 a movie I've never liked. Thor looking back is pretty pretty bad. This one I think pulls off a lot. Ultimately in the end I think it's a good movie. Let's get back into the racing a little bit and talk about Tilda Swinton playing the Ancient One, who in comics is an Asian man, but in the movie, she is some kind of Celtic mystic who has risen to the top of this temple in Kathmandu, Nepal. 
I went in fully expecting to hate this casting, and I was still bothered by it in some places, but Tilda Swinton is so good that you kind of forget that you're supposed to be mad about it. So when you zoom out and when you look at the the movie afterwards, I'm still bothered by it. I think that that could have gone to a number of really good actors who would have done just as well in it. But I don't hold anything against Tilda Swinton going in there and doing what she did because she's she acts the hell out of that role. And on that level, Tilda Swinton, fine. I still don't think that she should have actually been cast in this role, though. Director Scott Derrickson, he, he basically, the way he's put it, is that they were trying to remove a stereotypical character that was invented in in the early 60s, you know, um, and they were trying to uh, do that through switching the gender, and then they went, okay, well, now we have a dragon lady, other, you know, stereotype bomb, uh, and then they made it Celtic, and then they, I mean, they just went through all these changes, and so I believe that their intentions were probably pretty good in this. In doing that, they basically just removed the potential of an Asian character, and so, and he's even come back later on and said, going through this, the aftermath of the film, and I look at it now, it's like unintentional, but yes, I whitewashed this film. I didn't mean to, and I thought I was doing some good stuff with Wong, but the, they essentially did just remove that. Now, m- moving that aside, the reinvention of the character works for me. I think they do really well. I think Tilda Swinton is amazing in it. Moving outside of the film, like if you're just going to look at it at the art, they missed the mark on that one where they, they could have just removed the stereotypes and brought someone else in um, and and kind of worked within that framework. Moving over to uh, C. Robert Cargill, who's the screenwriter for this film, he did a really good interview with, it's an online show called Double Toasted. Um, in essence, what he said is there was no way to deal with this character and win. The simplest answer to getting rid of a stereotypical character is to make the character three-dimensional and to make them more than the stereotype, not simply the stereotype. You so know that's what, I, what mean? I was thinking so, is you say three-dimensional and they did that with the new character. Yeah, why can't so you So why just, didn't you just start from square one? That's exactly where I was going. That's exactly what they should have done. Like if you're worried about this character being a stereotype, then write them as more than a stereotype. The problem is in the writing, not in the casting in this case. And Tilda Swinton's fine. Like I said, she does fine in this Pulls role. it off. But it's exactly the kind of thing that if you'd let someone else play that role instead, like an Asian man like that character is in the comics, he also could have done really well in that role because you're given a lot to play with and a lot of character beats. I think that they tie themselves up into knots trying to be multicultural and in the end they ended up removing most of the asian characters from an asian setting instead the villain is white the main protagonist is white the protagonist trainer is white the protagonist trainer's number two guy is black yeah which is all fine and then off to the side there's an asian guy yeah and he gives I, you I a mean, few laughs they tied themselves up in knots trying to cast this thing and explain the casting when really they could have just written a better movie in a perfect world you know what i would have done and, you know, not made this movie? No, no, no. Actually, I would have made <laughs> this I movie. Because I wouldn't have made it. I, I would have made this movie. I would have told this movie, um, started this movie, and told it from the perspective of the Ancient One. Made it oh, their story. Oh, my God. That's such a better story. And then in the middle of it, they meet Doctor Strange, right? In the middle of it, that's when you switch. That's that when you pivot. That is such a better story. And then, you, then Doctor Strange takes this over because at some point, it's very similar in, in um, the sense of uh, uh, Django where they had a, a very lovable character who they kind of tell the story of, of mm-hmm. the, the German dentist, you know? But he has to die, or else that story doesn't work. Yeah. 
the Ancient One would have to die, obviously, or else yeah. the story doesn't work. And then Doctor Strange has to pivot and take that story over. So, I mean, that's how I would have done it. Let's get to our ratings for this then. So the scale that we have, instead of four stars, <laughs> we do N-E-R-D. Um, I believe the only thing to get a full nerd so far, you gave Luke Cage a full nerd. Full nerd. Um, I believe I gave it an N-E-R. Um, and in retrospect, I like that show more now that I'm not actually watching it, which is kind of strange. But I digress. So for Doctor Strange, I will go first because I think that yours will be more positive. I give Doctor Strange an N-E. It's enjoyable in the moment. There's a bunch going on that you can look at. But I think at the end, you kind of feel cheated out of what it could have been or you kind of feel like they just did this to flesh out the rest of the Marvel Cinematic Universe and you didn't really need to sit through this story. I kind of took some of that stuff and I felt more positive about it, about fleshing out the rest of the uh, series. But mm -hmm. um, the film unto itself, I give it an N-E-R. Ah. And I think the reason it's missing that uh, the last D there is because uh, mainly because of those pacing problems and the depth of character problems that, that kind of follow along with that. Um, knocking those two out just, I mean, that knocks enough off for me, but ultimately, is this a film that's worth seeing? Yeah, I, I'd tell people, go ahead and check this one out. Another big thank you to Keiko Green and Tanika Stotts. I don't think our discussion today would have been nearly as good without their perspectives added. And we want to hear from you listeners out there too. We're on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Search for NW Nerd on Facebook or NW underscore nerd on Twitter and Instagram. If we missed anything in our discussion or if you just have a different point of view on, I mean, the litany of things that we said this week, let us know. We want to hear from you guys. I think that this discussion is ongoing. And in a podcast, you can only say so much. So there's definitely some things that we left on the table. Let us know. Reach out to us on Facebook and Twitter. Also, very open to any and all Westworld theories you guys want to share. Just face tweet them at us. We'll also be posting some stuff on there that didn't make it into the podcast up on our uh, social media, so you're going to want to check that out. Don't forget, you can find links to all of that stuff on our website, nw-nerd.com. That's also where you can find the past four episodes as well. can't believe we're five episodes into this thing. Uh, speaking of which, we're going to be taking a break as I will be doing some traveling out of the country. So episode six won't be released until next month. So subscribe to us on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, and Google Podcast, and turn on notifications so that you're the first to know when we come back. And as always, you guys, thank you so much for listening. This was episode five of season one of the Northwest Nerd Podcast. Again, my name is Nick Jaren, Dyer Oxley here with me. We'll see you in a few weeks, nerds. Anything else? Too much. Guardian Leviosa.